there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast designed to see the water that surrounds us. Level six, fresh off of the successful run, in artistic terms at least, of Armageddon Radio Hour and WDP, officially an Illinois non-for-profit corporation incorporated on December 7th, 1994, were undergoing some planning to go to Scotland. In the meantime, there were shows to do. Kyle Kazire, the artistic director of Comedy Sports, Chicago Comedy Sports, became a pretty influential artistic voice for Jason and I during our time at Comedy Sports. In early January, Comedy Sports asked me if I would go on a three-week remote tour to the Club Med in the Dominican Republic, which, of course, I did. Kyle was the cat in charge, and Jeff Shavar, our musician, Karen McKee, and I were the WNEP folks that went along. Now, during that trip, one that was, was a lot of cool, it was just a, an incredible experience. Sun, sand, snorkeling, naked European sunbathing and booze. Lots and lots of booze. It was fun, and it was a pain in the ass. The comedy sports folks were treated like hired monkeys having to perform menial labor as well as comedy classes and shows. Well, Kyle and I, at the time, talked at length about long-form improvisation. I had no experience with long-form, given that my improv resume included Second City training, which focuses on sketch writing and comedy sports, which is all short-form. And he and I, along with McKee and Joni Clunan, discussed The Herald, Del Close's signature long-form and arguably the basis of all long-form improvisation, and variations that we'd seen done in Chicago. Well, by the time we returned to Chicago, we started including Jason in on the conversations. Kyle Kyle finally suggested a new form, one that actually included one cast performing two long forms simultaneously and creating a full narrative along the way. Well, Jason, Joe, and I powwowed and decided the form would be our next show. I would produce the show and Meyer would direct. The cast was comprised of folks Jason wanted to work with rather than audition. So from WDP, there was myself and Pat Carton. From Comedy Sports, there was Kyle, Joni, Jay Suko from Other Little Stage Horrors as well, and Kevin Colby, a cat from Kansas City Comedy Sports, who I met the day I auditioned for the Second City Training Center and had been buddies with ever since. If Colby was going to be played in a movie, Matthew McConaughey would play him in his dazed and confused persona. The show was entitled Assume the Green Room, and it was a real mindfuck. The first form, remember there are two forms, simultaneous. The first form involved each of us creating a character fully fleshed out that was a part of a long-form improv traveling group called Insert Name. It took place in the green room of a fictional venue somewhere in America. It played out like a strange, you know, like a soap opera sitcom with characters who had established history going through their day before performing the show in the town that night. My character was, of course, the producer-director, not 
really a big stretch. Suko decided that his character has lost his he had lost his left arm in an accident. So this involved him strapping his arm down for every show and improvising with one arm every night. Well, the second form was a herald-like long form performed that night in the venue with the characters we created playing improv characters in a show on stage. Our scenes and reactions were influenced greatly by the narrative in the green room, thus connecting the two forms. Now, when Jason, who is also on lights, wanted us to switch from one form, the green room, to the other, the show, he'd black out the entire stage for a three-count, signaling the change. It was a monster to do. I mean, after much discussion, we decided not to let the audience know it was a fully improvised show, and Jason would come on stage at the end of the show to give, the, give us the suggestion for the show we just did. Well, during rehearsals, Kyle decided for personal reasons that he would step out of the show. Jason decided not to replace him and let the five remaining just kind of run with it and trying to train a new actor to follow this logistical nightmare seemed unfair. And the show was a modest success. Hell, we actually made some money on it. And aside from the typical melodramatics of working closely with humans, we all walked away intact and having had a pretty good time. The Chicago Reader had this to say about it. Quote, in the frequently pointless and sometimes downright dumb world of Chicago improv, What Now Entertainment Productions scores points for what it doesn't do and what it's not. They don't clog up their sketches with needless instructions and recitations of rules. They don't bother going for easy laughs with trite audience particip participation gimmicks. They're not offensive. They're not stupid. They're not patently imitative. Sad to say, though, they're not all that interesting either. Assume the green room is essentially a mind screw depicting conversations between actors backstage interspersed with an improvised drama on stage. We saw both the improv crew in the green room of some Hicktown auditorium and the intricate scenes of interrelated scenes that would perform they would perform a few hours later in front of the jerkwater crowd. Chronicling the someone some to nowhere lives of farmers, diner waitresses, and poor saps at local barn dances, the scenes are refreshingly complete, always in concluding logically rather than with a throwaway black outline. The performer's ability to play multiple characters and keep track of the relatively sophisticated plot lines is pretty impressive, but ultimately Adam Langer of The Rear didn't really like the show. You can kind of tell from the review he didn't really like improv. So that made sense. Well anyway, all this aside, at this point Jason Meyer was made the first artistic director for WNEP Theater. Now, Meyer's cool, super cool, smart, funny, extraordinarily calm almost all the time, and he brought a genuine sense of hip to the group, kind of like having a young Leonard Cohen hanging around. He was a great choice for our early artistic guidance. I remember he wondered why I just didn't make myself the artistic director. I mean, you're the one floating it, it seems like, you know, means the most to you of anybody. Nah, you know my sitting naked eating fruit while listening to Elvis Presley piece? Yeah, that's why I can't be the AD. The stuff that I'm into would drive away anyone but the freaks. I'm better in the fringe artistically, subtly influencing things from there. Like the Armageddon Radio or Suicide thing? Yep, just like that. In the meantime, the rest of the group met a couple of times to discuss the realities of actually going to Scotland with Armageddon Radio Hour. While no one seemed to take it that seriously when we talked about it, everybody decided that they would pony up a couple of grand for airfare and housing. Neither Alita or I were let that stop us. Everybody was freaking out about it, but she and I put together little booklets for everyone about the rules of traveling abroad, how to get a passport, what electronic converters you needed, how to exchange money, etc. And I started to try and to find the cheapest way for us to fly, live, and perform for a month in another country. My fellow Americans, my friends, 
Three weeks have passed since I last addressed the people of the nation concerning the state of the nation. That's a boy cracker. Stay away from the poker. To be frank, I had not planned on having this talk until after the broadcast of tonight's Yankees game. But what I want to say to you is so important that the boys of summer will just have to wait a short while. My friends, I want to address a rumor that has left its muddy footprints across our great land this week. A rumor that has caused otherwise sane Americans to drain their bank accounts in cities large and small, commit crimes, and even end their own lives. This rumor is, of course, the one that purports that the world will end in a very hellish fireball this very evening. That somehow, our friends at the Dunbar Corporation are responsible for this judgment day. That somehow, your government is withholding this information to prevent widespread panic and general tomfoolery. And that I, the president, have some sort of rocket-powered wheelchair to whisk me out of harm's way. As Americans, we have learned hard lessons about rumor during times of trouble and the damage that they can do. So today, I met with representatives of the Dunbar Corporation, including Mr. Cranston Dunbar himself, and we discussed the matter. And I come before you tonight to assure you that this rumor is absolutely, positively true. All except the rocket, of course. The good Lord's a coming, and he's a calling our name. At approximately 12.15 a.m. Eastern Time tomorrow morning, uh, tonight, you know, after midnight tonight, the world as we know it will cease to be. Now, I remind every American within the sound of my voice, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And monsters. Monsters are terribly frightening, but nothing else. Dunbar, sensing a patriotic obligation, has lined up a dandy evening of programming for you. Some of your favorite radio stars are taking part in this command performance, so sit back and take a break from your worries. During the past few years of my administration, you have earned it. As you can imagine, I have a few prime ministers to call. I hope they will be understanding, considering the rather large favors we've done for them in the recent past. And I'll tell them what I tell you now. As I speak, a blue cloud the size of the state of... Asphyxiation... Flesh-eating virus... Four horsemen... If there's anybody within the sound of my voice, please, someone help me. I'm so lonely. Told you so. I told you so. It says in the Bible in Mark, Luke 13. Bolshevik. The temperature outside right now is 212 degrees. Admit it. I was wrong about the whole atheist thing. So if there's a priest out there, could you please come down to the studio and baptize me right now? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's now time for your Armageddon Radio Hour, brought to you on the United Radio Network. Here's the way you work, Don. Say you've taken everyone out on an expedition to the Arctic. After a long trek through ice and snow, wind, and a lack of oxygen, you come up against a giant ravine, one that seems absolutely uncrossable. You declare that to everybody that we will cross this ravine. Almost everyone blanches at the stupidity of the idea but you're determined. You set out preparations to cross it by yourself, out of nothing but stubbornness. 
as it becomes apparent that you will not be deterred a couple of the people, me, Jason, Alita, realize that you're going to die if you go this alone. And we decide, well, we just can't let you die. We convince the rest of the party to at least try. We all hunker down and work with the idea that we're saving you from yourself. After a while, your enthusiasm starts to work on everyone else. People begin to believe uh, that it can be done. It can be traversed. And once we've navigated the impossible challenge you set for the group, we all sort of forget that you essentially bullied us into going all along, and we celebrate our success. Then, before the sweet taste of victory can even sink in, you find another ridiculous task for us to all undertake, and the process repeats itself. That was a, a paraphrase quote from Dave Wiviot, who was the WNP board chairman from 1994 to 1998. Such was the trip to Scotland. Now, during the run of Assume the Green Room, I spent hours on the phone and internet trying to establish the most cost-effective way to fly 12 people to a foreign country, house and feed them for a month, and manage to have a place to perform our show. By March, I had secured a sponsorship from Air Canada, who agreed to fly us all to Glasgow for a $165 round trip. The going rate at the time was around $600. The sponsorship included Flights for Us Care putting our, their logo on our t-shirts, programs, and on our website, and a live commercial for Air Canada in the show, which Meyer wrote as a bump for the Yukon Pete Canary for the Royal Canadian Mounties sketch. On top of that, after scores of phone calls and discussions with cats whose Scots accents were as thick as steak and Guinness pie, I'd secured a venue, the Moray House Theatre, a theatre bar with seating for about 120, located less than a mile from the Edinburgh Fringe box office and the Edinburgh Castle. All right, everybody ponied up for the flights. 165 bucks wasn't that much. And once that was paid for, we were on, we were ready to go. We were on course. I ended up finding a 10-room three-story house just off of High Street that was for rent for a month for the month of August. The old woman who owned the place hated being in town during the Fringe and rented it out every year. I snagged it for what amounted to $50 a piece for the month for everybody. Given that most out-of-towners had to pay inflated apartment rentals or hotel fee room fees, this really actually was an amazing feat. We were approached by the folks at Comedy Sports. Since so many of us were in Comedy Sports, why not take a Comedy Sports show along as well? and thus added five more people, making a tally, a grand total of 17 people in our 10-room house for a month. So the skinny was this. WNP was taking both the Armageddon Radio Hour and a comedy sports show to run for the entire month of August, housing and organizing 17 people and hoping we didn't lose our asses over this. I've been told that the average fringe audience was seven. So we definitely had our work cut out for us. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Nick Orpheus, and now the news, border to border and coast to coast. All over America, so-called judgment fever grips the populace. Reports are coming in from Los Angeles to Bangor of bizarre behavior from otherwise decent Americans. Saratoga, New York. The entire city of Saratoga is under martial law tonight as federal forces try to quiet the townspeople after riots involving a golden calf. And speaking of upstate New York, in the sleepy little town of Voorheesville, New York, Mr. Jay Creevy has been accused of food hoarding. Once again, Mr. Jay Creevy of Voorheesville, New York, is hoarding food. International news. Norway. Sources close to this reporter in Norway report that a giant wolf has blocked the sun over all of Scandinavia. The Oslo government has issued no comment. Palestine. 
Broken wax seals litter the streets of Tel Aviv as the Red Sea remains unseasonably warm. Additional reports come in daily of a drastic rise in the frog and locust population. This just in, walls bleed in the Dome of the Rock in Saudi Arabia. What rough beast slouches towards Bethlehem to be born? You can bet dollars to donuts that it ain't John D. Rockefeller. And now, a word from our friends at Pooch Grub. Now, one not-so-brilliant idea was to print up some t-shirts and sell them in Scotland. And then the idea is that we'd then use the money to pay for a collective grocery purchase to help offset the food cost. As things got closer to the date, Jason stripped the dark suicide ending, the rationale being that a festival audience needed a curtain call and a bit of feel-good ending to help, you know, with the word of mouth. Unknown to the ensemble, I ended up putting up much of the production cost on my credit card in hopes that we'd bring in enough dough to reimburse me when we got home. This was one of the biggest mistakes financially I have ever made. In July, and while we're still in Chicago, an interviewer from the Glasgow Herald calls me. He tells me that due to the unprecedented number of Chicago shows coming to the festival, and there were 12 that year, the, the Herald would be running a five-page feature on the groups and wanted to set up a time and place for an interview. Well, because WDP is the least known group, he'd waited until all the other interviews were scheduled with Second City, Improv Olympic, all these other guys. In the end, he ended up coming to my regular Sunday grilling, and we grilled every Sunday, and he admitted he'd never had a bratwurst. And this was the afternoon before his flight home left. So we were kind of the afterthought. Uh, we held the interview in my living room. Phil uh, Aaronsbury was there to provide support. After we went outside, hung out, I grilled food. And he had five brats. He loved them and drank with the regular barbecue crowd, which is mostly WNP people. I don't know if it was just the mo I was just the most colorful or the fact that instead of whining and dining him, I beard and bratwursted him. But when the article came out, Level 6 had a huge center spread photo in the meat of the article and a sidebar with my photo entitled, In Your Face, Here Comes the Ugly American. The sidebar detailed that I wore a ball cap, smoked cigars, had a foul mouth, and only needed a gun in one pocket and a pornographic magazine in the other to complete the stereotypical American profile. Uh, it then went on to discuss my theater background and how my first impressions can be deceiving. It plugged both the radio show and comedy sports and was the company's very first piece of international press. So as we got closer to the deadlines for money, more and more people wanted to come. And as I added folks to the list, my wife Deanna, Pat's wife, Dave Gaudet, and Joe from Comedy Sports, the deals I had made began to change. The Air Canada deal was set at $165 per round trip, but as we added folks to the list, the average price began to go up a bit, as did the price of the housing. We ended up getting hit for a month of expanded insurance and deposits on both heating and electricity. As it turned out, I managed to get everyone there and back with a month-long stay for approximately $700 a person, which was pretty extraordinary. Most, most of the other folks were paying $700 to $900 just to fly out. Production expenses, however, began to mount. So I've got this, I've got flyers, the venue rent, publicity packets, some advertising, posters. The costs were starting to balloon. I put most of it, like I said, on my credit card or I just paid them outright. And my long-distance phone bill for July was over $800. At a certain point, you know, I just closed my eyes to it, and I just pressed forth, hoping that somehow we'd, we'd just make the money back. Greetings, folks. This is Charles Dumas Cordova. 
Welcome to the Armageddon Radio Hour, brought into your living rooms by our good friends at Dunbar. Dunbar produces so many of the things that we, as Americans, take for granted. Nick just told you about Pooch Grub, that economical new way to keep Rover full. And we all know about conveniences like the Dunbar Wet Bar, the soap for people who don't have the time to shower, and medium cigarettes for those not afraid of the blasé. We have so many talented folks here tonight, ready to entertain you on this J-Day. Why, there's Juliet St. Clair and Packy Savoy, those marvelous actors sharing a very small cigarette. They're probably rehearsing for the big play, King of Bedside Manor, coming up later. Here come Eleanor McGillicuddy and Molly Fuller warming up for their parts in tonight's show. Nick Orpheus is elbow deep in news wires. Buddy Jones is beside himself with excitement, calling everyone to the studio. It looks like a big night for everyone involved. We flew in, and with the sole exception being that Kate and Alita had some trouble flying in on the day we'd, after we'd arrived, things went very smoothly. The housing was awesome. Everyone had a bed, there were four bed bathrooms, a community room, which kind of became the room with the pot of cigarette butts, utilized by Phil and Alita when they'd run out of cigarette money and needed to scrounge, which is kind of gross. And we were walking distance from Holyrood Castle, the Fringe office, and our venue. Phil and Joe had a wrestling match over who got the room best for writing, Joe won, and I brought a megaphone to wake people up, which Katie at one point took and hid. The plan really was pretty simple. We'd meet in the community room every other day at 10 a.m. I'd assign folks to go to the main drag just outside the French box office and fly post, and then we'd do our thing. We rehearsed for the first couple of days and spent a lot of time figuring out which shows we were going to be able to see and parties we were going to. The show started slow, but as we got some phenomenal press in, in all the Scottish papers, things picked up considerably. Karen got us booked to sing our opening number on BBC Radio Scotland Live, and Jeff got a blurb in the paper for chasing down a purse snatcher, amazingly enough. Joe got kidney stones one weekend and had to use the lovely national health care system, and Suko broke the plumbing in the house, thus flooding the basement. Our 10 a.m. meetings became me sitting in the room fuming because most people had been out partying until 6 a.m. We ate tons of steak and Guinness pie and homemade toasties. We, you know, I started to feel the pressure of the money I'd spent on my own. Started to feel alone in carrying the burden of promoting the show, which actually wasn't true at all. Became kind of a raving asshole, complete with my crown of thorns and stigmata for a part of the month. And nearly, I felt like had a nervous breakdown at one point, crying uncontrollably in the rain uh, for like three hours during our final week. It was a hard week. But we saw shows. Macbeth in a swimming pool done in the kabuki style. A two-man acrobatic Rube Goldberg set lighthouse comedy. An evening that included a black man painted green with his dick painted yellow dancing around and an absurdly obese woman prop popping the heads of Barbie dolls off in her ass. A Ukrainian version of Chekhov's The Bear that had us all enthralled. It was complete and overwhelming artistic overload. The amount of eye-opening and idea-stealing was the single best part of the experience. At a strange Scottish flea market, Alita bought me a board game, How to Be a Complete Bastard, based in part on the book by Young Ones star Adrian Edmondson. One night, after our performance run was complete and we were slowly seeing people off and preparing to come home to the States, we all decided to play the game. 
a board game with reverse goals. You won if you were the furthest from completing the game and based entirely on daring your teammates to do stupid shit. The game was both a great drunken time as well as an awful hysterical final hurrah in Edinburgh. During that particular night and that particular game, I chewed a piece of Velita's toenail off, Alita used a butcher knife and cut her panties off without removing her jeans. Someone, I think it was Jeff, seduced a chair as if it was Nancy Reagan. Phil stood on his head and attempted to pull three leg hairs out of his leg, and I thought he was going to snap his neck at the time. And then Jeff ended the game by attempting to drink a half-water, half-salt con concoction that him, had him violently throw up so intensely that we were, thought we were going to have to avail ourselves of the Scottish health care system a second time. So after some strange flight difficulties that really ended up having Dave Wiviot and I flying home separately from the rest of the group, which was excellent because we were on British Airways and that was cool. Um, they, we had great seats. We finally got home and I crunched the numbers. After all was said and done, I had incurred a nearly $12,000 debt. And this was after all the money was paid by the venue from ticket sales. I still owed $12,000. I vowed that day to never shoulder the sole financial burden on anything theater-related ever again. All in all, we received great press, international press, we saw amazing theater, and we made some friends. The, the experience still remains one of my favorite uh, life experiences despite my losing my ass financially and I would recommend it to anyone involved in art or theater. I also discovered a city that I felt so at home in, so relaxed and in love with that I seriously there for a while considered moving. I love Scotland and Edinburgh specifically. It's one of the greatest places on the planet Earth. Well that's it for this week. Next week, we take a look at my fourth tattoo and the stories of how I came to get that. So until next week, go out and tell some stories. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud, or download it from DonHallChicago.com. You can assist Peculiar Journeys financially, if you can, by becoming a VIP patron on www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys. 